This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. At the top of the show, we're very sad to hear about the death of the much-loved Catholic priest and social justice campaigner, Father Bob Maguire. He was 88 years old and he spent 40 years as the priest of St Peter and St Paul Parish in South Melbourne. There'll be many tributes to Father Bob, including on the ABC, but we highlight his decades of advocacy for the poor and his late career success as a radio and TV personality. Vale, Father Bob. Now, Ethiopia is one of the oldest Christian civilizations on earth. Since the 4th century, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has helped unite this ethnically diverse country But a serious split among Orthodox leaders could now threaten this country's fragile peace. Catherine Herald is East Africa correspondent for the Washington Post. She's just returned from Ethiopia. One of those fractures is from some of the Afan Oromo speaking bishops, and they would like to see more representation at the highest levels of leadership of Oromo clergy. They actually ordained a number of priests into being bishops without the permission of the patriarch, which was considered to be a highly rebellious move, and they were excommunicated as a result. But the prime minister eventually brokered a deal that saw the two sides come back together, if somewhat grudgingly, um, for the moment. And that reflects a political movement in Oromia, which is Ethiopia's largest and most populous province, for greater political representation. They say that they have been sidelined or marginalized for many decades. So that reflects what's going on in the country. And this is very, very important, Catherine, because the Ethiopian Orthodox uh, Church is one of the oldest in the Christian world. I think it goes back to about 340 AD. Why is a dispute in the church potentially damaging to the fragile peace in Ethiopia generally? Well, the church is a a really important institution. It's probably the institution that binds um, the most Ethiopians together. They do have a, a large Muslim population as well, and there's growing representation from evangelical and Protestant churches, especially in the South. But everybody has respect for the Orthodox Church, and its words carry great weight. It's been involved in documenting war crimes. It may well be involved in any transitional justice mechanism that's set up. So what they say has a direct impact on the politics of the country. And church leaders are also able very quickly to call people out on the streets for demonstrations if they want to, as we have seen with this crisis with the Oromia bishops. Yeah, and as you say, Ethiopia is a multi-faith country. I think about a third of the country are Sunni Muslims, another 20% Protestant, Evangelical, and the rest are Orthodox. But it's also multi-ethnic, and this is one of the things that makes your story so important, Catherine. How has the Orthodox Church traditionally helped overcome some of the ethnic divisions? The Orthodox Church has representation throughout the country. They very often issue statements in concert with Muslim or Protestant or evangelical leaders. But as the biggest faith group in the country, it does mean that the church is represented in 
most of the regions at a high level. And so they have a lot of influence on politics. What's it like, by the way, Catherine, going into an Ethiopian Orthodox church? What does it look like and sound like? It depends where you're going. There's lots of different kinds of churches. There's these little hexagonal buildings on the side with tinkling tin bells, or you have these great rock-hewn monolithic churches, uh, very famous at Lalabella. You have big cathedrals. Uh, you have very small churches set up by the side of the road. I paid a visit to Lalabella to talk to people there, and that's really quite an amazing place where you have people chanting and singing at uh, five o'clock in the morning mass, banging drums on feast days, these rock-hewn churches where the stone is so rough, but the lips of pilgrims have smoothed the stone over centuries. It's really quite an amazing place to enter. What do you mean the pilgrims literally kiss the stones? In all churches, pilgrims usually kiss the lintel of the door or the steps as they're going in. And the churches themselves, as you say, they can often be quite humble. Are they the centre of town and village life often? Very often, yes, they are. Um, in most places where that's a majority of worshippers, most Orthodox observe things like feast days or fasting days, church holidays. You will find if you get into a taxi that many taxi drivers I, I know will just cross themselves as they pass a church. People are largely quite observant of religious rituals. And how big is the diaspora? Because we have Ethiopian Orthodox in Australia, but I'm, I'm sure we're certainly not the only country outside of Ethiopia. Absolutely. And there's big Ethiopian diaspora in Australia, in parts of Europe, particularly in the United States and in Canada. There are many bishops that were appointed in the United States. And when some bishops were actually forced to flee Ethiopia after the TPLF-led EPRDF government took power, there was for some time some bishops in America who were sanctioned by the patriarch and some bishops who were excommunicated by him and the two sides excommunicated each other. But this is the first time that we've seen such things happening in Ethiopia itself. Mm. Now, how was the church affected by the civil strife between the central government and the Tigray rebels, which was supposed to have quietened last November? But how was the church affected by that? The church was very affected by the war in Tigray. You saw churches burned down, priests had been killed. I interviewed several of their family members. Female relatives had been gang raped. That was unfortunately a characteristic of the conflict was extreme sexual violence. That happened you know, in northern Ethiopia, um, not just in Tigray, but also a bit in neighboring regions. But the Tigrayan church was particularly angered by what they saw as the failure of other bishops, not just to speak against the war, but actually they felt endorsing it. So they split off and they have said that they will form their own church unless they receive a proper apology and some compensation from the church because they have to rebuild all these burned down churches and support the families of all these priests who've been killed. Undoubtedly, that was the case. But did the church, the patriarch of the church and the church's other leadership actually support explicitly Prime Minister Abe Ahmed as he prosecuted that uh, civil strife? So the patriarch of the church is actually Tigrayan and he 
spoke out strongly against the war in a video that was smuggled out by an American pastor. But after that, he found it very difficult to speak out um, because he was in the capital. There was no access to him for outsiders. And his chief of staff, who was also Tigrayan, was arrested I think about half a dozen times kept in a prison where he was only given a couple of pieces of bread to eat per day. This was a common experience for Tigrayan civilians living in the capital. We actually documented thousands of such arrests. I think we had about 17,000, but we certainly didn't document all of them. As you say, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has historically had this function of binding these disparate ethnic communities together. How has it gotten on generally, by the way, with the other faith communities? I'm thinking especially of the Protestants and the growing evangelical and Pentecostal movements. Does it feel threatened by those churches? One of the key complaints of the three Afan Oromo speaking bishops was that they were losing parishioners because of a failure by the church to offer enough services in Afan Oromo. And they put that failure down to not training enough priests or other church servants from the Oromo community. So Certainly, those three priests have complained about that. But I also see sometimes joint statements by faith leaders. All different faiths were represented at an event on transitional justice that the government held recently. I wouldn't call it, you know, an antagonistic relationship. It's just people are very aware that they want to be able to serve worshippers in the best way that they can. Just finally, Catherine, as you've been pointing out um, in your story, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church isn't just a place of worship. What else do Ethiopians, and more particularly at these times, Ethiopian politicians expect of that church? Well, the church provides a lot of leadership um, and a lot of moral guidance in Ethiopia. The patriarch put it, he said, the, the church is the lifeblood to all of us. You know, if a vein is cut, then you will die. It is a force for unity. It is a force for leadership. And I think that the church is very aware of that and wants to use its position responsibly. And that's the reason why some in the church feel angry because they feel that the church has failed to offer them leadership for their particular cause. So that's something that the church is struggling with in the same way that that the Ethiopian government is struggling with. There are many competing claims at the moment, both from political leadership and from church leadership. And those claims are sometimes very difficult to reconcile. Catherine Herald, she is the East Africa correspondent for the Washington Post, will put a link to Catherine's stories, not just this fascinating piece on the Ethiopian church, but her body of work on our website. Catherine, thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you so much. Catherine Herald of the Washington Post, speaking from Nairobi in Kenya. In northern Ethiopia, an Australian nurse and aid worker runs the Afar Pastoralist Development Association. Valerie Browning has been in the region for more than 30 years. She warns famine now threatens a population almost the size of Australia's. The broad figure is 22 million, but around the Horn of Africa, starting from the northern Kenya southern Ethiopia, which are connected, then going over to the Somali region, 
then coming up the east side towards us in northeast Ethiopia. And then there are people who are very seriously affected in central Ethiopia due to conflict and very, very recently in the Sudan. Hmm. So um, we've got a mixture here of natural and human catastrophes causing food insecurity, pushing people towards isolation from actual food supplies and then going into starvation if they're not assisted. So because of the political instability, you can't respond Mm. effectively to the natural disaster. That's right. In many cases, that's absolutely true. And this is very difficult. People also, due to the political instability, do go into remote areas to try and protect themselves. They cannot get food supplies. The thing is exacerbated. Why hasn't the United Nations declared this an emergency yet? I'm on the ground as a humanitarian working in one small area of Ethiopia, I really don't know, other than to say our world itself runs by political interest, not by humanitarian interest. We've had many high-level political visitors to the country and to the region. Things don't look any brighter, really. The other thing we're under is a fantastically galloping inflation of all commodities. And this is also a driving factor for people not being able to be able to access food also. And something, I believe, that's almost biblical, haven't you had a plague of locusts? Yes, we have. We've had a plague of locusts that came just before the 22 main rains and stripped the land. Valerie, one of the the ironic things in all of this is that African economies are projected to do pretty well in the next few years. I I think the top five countries in Africa are likely to get growth rates of 5.5%. What stops this development being enjoyed more widely across the continent? I would think the political instability itself, because we are in an extraordinary uncertain time. we the year 2021-22 with the conflict, extreme conflict in northern Ethiopia. We in our region continue conflict pushed from the Somali-Djibouti side onto the Afar in southern Afar. Just so recently, it seems conflict's broken out in Khartoum. It's extremely severe and it will spread to the other towns of Sudan expecting to create refugees coming into Ethiopia. So we go around in a cycle. The ordinary people are forced by political uncertainty to displace either inside their country as refugees. They leave behind their ability to produce or their ability to help themselves. It is not inevitable that 22 million people have to endure starvation and malnutrition, is it? What can be done to stop that? There is tremendous international meddling in the Horn of Africa at the moment to secure interests of various political powers. If that stopped, then the people who are being driven 
into conflict probably would not have the resources they now have to fight the conflicts, we would get better off politically. But from the humanitarian side, five years of drought is horrendous. People are on their knees with no assets, no way of assisting themselves. So they become dependent in our experience here. Not only do you need to assist them, you need to build into that assistance their recovery immediately to help them get off their knees. Australian nurse Valerie Browning from the Afar Pastoralist Development Association in Ethiopia. And you're with me, Andrew West, on the Religion and Ethics Report here on RN and at the ABC Listen app. One of the most striking images of modern Burmese history is from 2007. Those orange-clad Buddhist monks marching through Myanmar's cities demanding an end to the military dictatorship. But today some of the monks are seriously divided. Some even back the military dictatorship that seized power again in early 2021. And those who oppose the junta cannot bring themselves to support armed resistance. Richard Horsey from the International Crisis Group has written a report on the silence of the monks. Many people, when the coup in Myanmar took place a little over two years ago, expected that the monastic community would be at the forefront of resistance to the coup. There's a long history of the Buddhist Sangha being involved uh, in resistance movements and political movements, all the way from the country's independence movement, beginning of last century, through to the so-called Saffron Revolution of 2008. And so that was the expectation, but it didn't really happen. The monks in Myanmar have been at times engaged. Some monasteries, some individual monks have been engaged on both sides, actually. But the sort of broad-based Sangha hasn't emerged as a main force in the anti-coup movement. What really fascinated me about this report uh, that you've done for the International Crisis Group is that um, many monks who were involved in the 2007 Saffron Revolution, I mean, they put their lives and their bodies on the line on the streets 15 years ago, now seem to be supporting the regime, the, the coup regime, why? You know, a lot has changed since that time, since 2007. And I think one of the main things is that Myanmar went through a decade of opening, first with a reformist semi-civilian government and then under the NLD administration of Aung San Suu Kyi. Now, at the beginning of that decade of opening, many in the Sangha and many nationalists in the country were very worried about what opening to the world, a modernization would do to the traditional status of Buddhism in society. They looked around them, they looked at places like Thailand, and even to an extent Sri Lanka, and they saw democratization and liberalization as bringing not only modernity, but you know, creeping secularism. And they felt that this was a threat. And so 
the main worry, I guess, of the Sanger shifted from being their socioeconomic status under a military regime and, and oppression of, of the monks when they tried to stand by the people and support the people. And it shifted to, you know, was Buddhism going into a period of decline and would Buddhism still be the central pillar of Burman Buddhist society? There was this radical Buddhist nationalist movement which emerged, which, you know, many people outside of Myanmar saw or elements of with the violence against the Rohingya mm. and the hate speech online. But far deeper roots, there was an effort to you know, set up a Buddhist Sunday schools, uh, teach the right interpretations mm. of religion to kids. And they pushed hard for legislation that would protect the status of Buddhism. Yeah, this is very interesting, Richard, because, I mean, among the monks who have supported or at least don't oppose the military junta, how much of it is about ideology and how much of it is simply about fear. Well, that's right. I think, you know, the monks are trying very hard to stay in the background on this one. A few have come out, including some prominent monks in support of the military regime. And there are some, including some prominent monasteries and monks who have really been quite vocal and active in the anti-coup movement. But the vast majority just want to stay in the background on this. They don't want to enrage the regime because that is dangerous. The regime controls the security apparatus and they can arrest monks. They can close down monasteries and so on. But also, they don't want to go against public opinion. I mean, public opinion in Myanmar is very clearly and strongly against the coup. And so the monks also don't want to be against public opinion. They rely on the public for donations and support and, and, and their survival. So that's why they're kind of keeping in the background on this one, by and large. We're talking here, by the way, about a very significant group of people. I mean, I think the monastic community is 600,000, so it's a very significant group. Isn't there a problem, though, in the sense that the Buddhist monks, even if they are opposed to the regime, they simply cannot be involved in violent resistance? Isn't this part of their philosophy? And that stops them taking up arms. That stops them getting too involved. I think that's right. For many monks, you know, they look at the resistance movement in Myanmar, the National Unity Government, the defense militias that have sprung up you know, right across the country, and they find it difficult to support those forces. I mean, firstly, they find it difficult to support the NUG's call for a violent revolution, a defensive war, as the NUG puts it. That doesn't sit well with, you know, monastic views on, on nonviolence and so on. So I think that's very much the case. But also, they look at the regime's brutal violence and they don't want to be associated with that either. And what about this question, uh, the role of women, including Buddhist nuns, have had in sidelining the monks? The community of Buddhist nuns in Myanmar are, are not by any means uh, as powerful as the monks. There is a very definite distinction. And Myanmar is not one of those Buddhist countries where women can be ordained. So nuns have a sort of second class status. And, and that means they haven't been as influential. But I think the point about the sidelining of the monks is really that the people at the vanguard of this resistance movement and the anti-coup movement Many of them are young people, many young women are involved, and they're pushing a different agenda. They're saying we have to sweep away a lot of the old political orthodoxies. We have to get rid of power hierarchies. We have to get rid of this idea that it's old Buddhist Burman men who 
determine everything in all institutions. And so there's an element of a generational shift and, and an overturning of the old order. And of course, for monks, that's a kind of threat to their status to see these young women with new ideas and sometimes very secular ideas reaching out across not only ethnic but across religious divides to try and bring in as many people into the movement. And that doesn't sit well with a Buddhist nationalist worldview. Isn't there also a question of um, Christians being involved in some of the main resistance groups? Uh, and that kind of sidelines some of the, the Buddhist monks as well. I understand that some of the ethnic minority communities are largely Christian-led. Yes. You know, I think this is part of that secular agenda that is quite strong and visible in the resistance. And one of the aspects of that is that the national unity government, the parallel government that was set up by the people elected in the uh, general elections in 2020 that, that could never take up their seats as MPs because of the coup. So these people set up the national unity government. And among the leaders of that national unity government are people from ethnic minority communities, some of whom are Christian. And that's been very effective at moving beyond this kind of majoritarian rule of the country and trying to convince ethnic minorities that you know they will have a place in this new Myanmar that is being fought for. But it, it has alienated others, right? Because they look at the acting president, who's a very respected Kachin individual, a Christian, uh, the Kachin are a Christian a community, and they see this as, as an erosion of the status of Burman Buddhists as the natural leaders of the country. And of course, you know, there's a strong symbiosis always in Myanmar between religion and state, between Buddhism and state, and they look for leaders to be patrons of the religion and keep it strong. So uh, those kind of elements do send uh, alarm bells to, to some of the nationalist monks as well, yes. This is the Religion and Ethics Report with Andrew West. I'm speaking with Richard Horsey from the International Crisis Group about its latest report on Burma and Buddhist monks post-coup. Richard, let's talk about the other side. We've been talking about the anti-regime resistance. So we know that this community of monks, 600,000 of them, is very divided between those who are either anti-regime or pro-regime or just silent. How is the military junta attempted to co-opt some of the monks and their religion? So the coup leader, uh, the commander-in-chief, Minong Haing, you know, he portrays himself as a very religious, pious individual. Uh, he's also a very superstitious individual, he's always engaging in kind of yeah, these superstitious rituals, which are kind of linked to Buddhism, but not canonical Buddhism. It's part of the kind of superstition and the practice of religion in Myanmar. And so he does a lot of that kind of thing. He's trying to present himself as a good Buddhist leader, building the largest carved marble Buddha figure in the world, this huge towering structure in the capital. He often patronizes leading monks and, you know, really tries to show himself as a, as a supporter and defender of the faith. Uh, you know, I don't think this is going to wash with most of the population, but it is uh, something that I think all Myanmar leaders have felt they kind of have to do to keep the monkhood on side and thereby keep the Buddhist population on side. So he does an awful lot of that. But what he hasn't really done so far is try to use Buddhist nationalist tropes as a way to energize some support for the coup. And I think part of the reason for that is that he's a bit distrustful of some of the Buddhist nationalists as well. They are demagogues to a certain extent, some of them. They are 
rabble rousers, some of them. I'm talking of people like the monk uh, Wirathu here, uh, who you may remember featured on the cover of Time magazine some years back as mm-hmm. the Burmese bin Laden. Associating with these kind of people is risky because they won't necessarily do what they're told. And their aim is to be populist, not to be popular with the military as such. The bottom line is the military in Myanmar is just not popular now. It doesn't have a popular support base following the coup and the, the terrible violence that it's unleashed. And so he, he's, he's so far kind of shied away from attempting to instrumentalize Buddhist nationalists behind him. Yeah. When I look at this report that you've done, I see echoes here, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, of the sort of China model when it comes to religion. You tolerate, you regulate, you infiltrate, and then you control religion. I mean, how much of that is the modus operandi of this government, particularly in the way that they fund the sort of peak Buddhist council? Yeah, there's certainly an an attempt to co-opt monks through large donations, and they appoint the Sangha Council, which is supposed to be the peak body for regulating the Sangha and Sangha discipline. It's always been the case that, uh, or at least in in, in recent decades, that the Sangha Council was was appointed by the government. I think what's changed is that this regime has so little legitimacy as any kind of government that any association between them and the Sangha Council doesn't boost their legitimacy. It undermines any legitimacy that the Sangha Council may have. And so for most monks, for most siadors who run the individual monasteries, you know, they put up with the Sangha Council, but they certainly don't look to it for guidance or see it as a body with religious authority. And so that means that most decisions are actually taken by individual monasteries. Just finally, Richard, uh, we did mention just in passing the uh, situation, the plight of the Rohingya Muslims driven out in large measure of Myanmar. How does the crisis of the Rohingya actually complicate the situation for those who are opposed to the regime? Well, it's a very tricky problem because, uh, you know, the NLD government that was ousted in the coup was no uh, backer uh, of the Rohingya. On their watch, albeit not their responsibility, but on their watch, the military undertook this brutal ethnic cleansing campaign. And the NLD administration went to the International Court of Justice in The Hague and defended the military's actions in a genocide case brought by uh, the Gambia. And so many members of the NUG, the National Unity Government, who have an NLD background, you know, are on the record saying things about the Rohingya that don't sit well with liberal views among the uh, Generation Z and millennial people who are really driving the resistance on the ground and certainly don't sit well with the international community. So there's been an effort to kind of change tack on this. And to some extent, the NUG is doing better than the NLD in the past. It has spoken out about the Rohingya. It has more proactive policies. It has one Rohingya advisor, not member of the NUG, but advisor to the NUG. So it's trying, but it's it's a small step. And I don't think anything that would really convince the Rohingya that their fortunes have completely changed. And of course, uh, for those who are in Bangladesh, the majority of the Rohingya from Myanmar, uh, the prospects of return now seem more distant than ever when it's the architect of their ethnic cleansing that is now you know, in full charge, of, well, not in full charge of the country, but, but the ones who are running the security forces. Richard Horsey from the International Crisis Group. 
And that is the show for today. You can find us using the search function at the ABC Listen app. We're in the Society and Culture section. Or you can look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Hong Jang and Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.